Go ahead and grab your Bibles, 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. Uh, we're working our way through the story of, of Solomon, and what we find ourselves at right now is the climax of the Old Testament. This is, everything has led to this point, from, particularly from Abraham. You can really go back to Adam, but from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Judah and Moses and, and Aaron and Joshua and Samuel and David. Now we've come to, to Solomon and the building of the temple. This is the climax of the Hebrew Bible. Last week, we, we, we paused to look at the issue of the glory of God and what does the Bible mean by glory. And that sets up for what it is that, that we have here. Page 309 of your pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, take that one home with you. And if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. The writer of 1 Kings writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 1. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the father's house of the people of Israel, before King Solomon Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled, the king, uh, assembled to King Solomon at the feast of the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came and the priests took up the Ark and they brought up the Ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up, and King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark, so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles, and the poles were so long the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from the outside. And they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we always ask for the same thing, that you would move in a mighty way. You would open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands and our feet, that we would believe in your word, be transformed by your word, discover the Savior of your word, and that you would transform us through your word. Lord, this is your work. Be gracious to us in, in helping us understand and apply it. May I decrease so you can increase. Name yourself, we pray. Amen. Maybe seated. We can imagine a scenario where a little boy, we'll call him little Johnny, is uh, a, a, a bit too much for his mama to handle. And so one afternoon, she, she just tells little Johnny he's got to go outside and play, burn off some of that uh, excess energy. And of course, little Johnny does. But little Johnny, as, as little boys are prone to do, finds a big pile of mud and spends the rest of his day in the mud. While he's out there, Johnny's mother realizes that Johnny's room is an absolute mess. She hollers for Johnny, tells him to come in, only to discover what Johnny has been up to. Now, Mama has one of two choices she has to make. She can look at Johnny and say, Johnny, your room is a mess. You need to get up there right now and clean it. That, of course, would be a foolish decision. I don't know if you know much about mud and boys, but, but it goes with you everywhere you go. I mean, it's sort of madness, wouldn't it, that, that Johnny's room may be dirty, but it isn't muddy. 
And if he goes up to his room as is, he will make a bad situation significantly worse. What mama needs to do, first of all, is take him back outside with the hose and spray him down. Having been cleansed, he is ready to clean. The same is true when it comes to you and I. When it comes to, 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 to understanding redemption and, everything, and our spiritual well-being, we are like Johnny, covered from head to toe in filth, covered to head to toe in sin. As a result, we, we see all around us the need to clean things up, to straighten things out, to be reconciled with God. The problem is, is we haven't addressed the real problem. We are filthy and unclean. As a result, we have two choices before us. We can either choose religion or we can choose grace. And what we see here is the answer to that riddle. The the, the root issue of the Bible is how can a holy, righteous, pure, glorious God dwell with rebellious, wicked, evil people? The answer is given in the gospel. The answer is grace. And grace comes by the means of atonement. It is secured by atonement. I don't know if you'll find this fascinating or not, but it's my birthday, so I'm going to show it to you because I want to. But, but uh, chapter 8 is a significant chapter in the story of, 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 of Solomon, and it is a real work of art. This is common in the Bible. I've shown this uh, to other passages before. But chapter 8 is an example of what scholars call a chiasm. That is to say, I'll, I'll put it up here, that uh, the, uh, it is written in an A, B, C, B, A format. That is to say that, that the passage we look at today mirrors the very end of the chapter. The passage, Lord willing, we'll look at next week, will mirror the second to last uh, uh, passage uh, in chapter 8. And then right there in the middle, we see a unique passage that isn't shared anywhere else. This is common Hebrew narrative writings all over the Bible. It's a way to advance a story by, 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 by returning to, to where you began. So you end where you began, and all those themes are revisited throughout. It's a really creative and a beautiful way to tell a story. So you can see that, that it begins and it ends with the issue of celebration, worship, right? And at its center is the issue of prayer. But the big issue of 1 Kings 8 is how can we approach a holy God even though we are covered in sin, shame, and guilt? The first answer to that question we see here in these 11, these 11 verses, and that is atonements, that we are cleansed by the atoning work of Christ. Let's start here in verses 1 to 2 with the assembly. The assembly. Now, having constructed the temple, right, we spent some time on that. Solomon is ready to consecrate it. Now, the temple, of course, represents the presence of God among his people. When the Babylonians and later the uh, Romans in AD 70 destroyed the temple, burned it to the ground, uh, and, and not a stone was left, the people interpreted that act as God abandoning his people. Right? So, so this becomes the center of Jewish worship 
until A.D. 70. Notice in verse 1, we meet the who. Who is assembled? The answer, of course, is the leaders of Israel. Notice the three categories. You see it there in verse 1. The elders. These would be national leaders of Israel. And they play an influential role in the administration of Solomon. We first meet the elders all the way back in Exodus. You remember the story when Moses is leading his people through Israel and he goes to visit his father-in-law because his wife demanded it. And so, and Jethro sees that. He says, what you're doing is mad. You're trying to do everything yourself. Delegate some things to choice elders. And from that time, uh, all the way through the Old Testament, Israel is ruled and reigned through these elders. These are national leaders. Below that, we meet uh, what, what are tribal leaders. Basically, what you have here are representatives from the 12 tribes of Israel, Benjamin and Judah and, and Ephraim and, and, and whatnot. And so these guys have their tribe's interest in mind, right? This is the difference between the secretary of state nationally and the governor uh, of Kentucky. You know, although they're all Americans, they, they have different priorities, right? The governor of Kentucky isn't all too worried about the, what the governor of Iowa is doing these days. Not too worried about what's happening in New Jersey right now because his interest is that of Kentucky. So too these tribal leaders represent the each tribe. Finally, you see there uh, what I wrote, fathers. What we have here are patriarchs of families. It's interesting, isn't it? Solomon calls the national leaders. He calls the tribal leaders. He also calls the leaders of the home. In fact, you read verse 2, it clearly mentions men as being present. Only that's, that's an accident. That, that the Bible calls particularly men to step up and to be the primary pastors of their home and of their communities. Men are called to be spiritual leaders. Now, what is significant about this detail is, first of all, this is a corporate act of worship. Remember, remember our, our chiasm here of celebration. This is a corporate act of worship, which reminds us in the 21st century that, that worship is best when it is shared with other people. The reason we gather here today, instead of putting a camera right in front of my face or our worship team's face so that you can stay in your pajamas at home and watch on, the, on, on, on your phone, is because we understand that as embodied beings, we are called to worship with other embodied beings. Amen. We are called to be together. Now, we, are, we, we go online, and that is a service we make available to those who aren't able to be here. They're traveling. They're taking care of loved ones. They are sick or whatever it might be. But worship at its best is worship that is shared together, right? And so we see not only the corporate act of worship, we see again that men are called to lead in worship. We've known this for decades. In fact, the first time you and I ever met, when I was still a candidate for, for pastor here, uh, we talked about this. Uh, the studies have been shown, we've known this for decades, that if you want to reach a community, what we usually do is we, we, we target children, right? We'll do VBS, we'll do Sunday school, we'll do kids activity. There's nothing wrong with that. You can get kids to come to church, especially if there's enough sugar involved. That's pretty straightforward. You can do it. However, we've discovered if you win children, you'll lose them when they start the drive. If you get the mothers, they'll bring their children. You'll lose the children when they leave the home. But if you win fathers, statistically, there are generation benefits of that. 
Not all the time, not universally, but statistically, you have a better, uh, it's a better option to win fathers because fathers matter in the spiritual well-being of others. Well, that's the who. Notice the when in verse 2, the timing of the assembly. The text tells us there in verse 2, it was at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. Now, to us, that's July, but that is not the Jewish calendar. Let me just tell you that this is uh, a certain festival, a significant festival on the Jewish calendar, and it is the Feast of Tabernacles. You, you may have heard it called the Feast of Booths. Either term is, is perfectly fine. This is one of three major Jewish festivals by which Jews are strongly encouraged to come to Jerusalem to celebrate. Passover and Day of Atonement would be the two others. So this is a big, big uh, feast. This is their Christmas, if you will, right? This is a, a big celebration that, that, that they have. Now, what it does is it, it, is a, it is a celebration of remembrance. It goes all the way back to when the Jews were in the wilderness, right? So what they do is, is they build tents or booths or whatever you want to call them, and they live in them for seven full days a whole week. The reason is to commemorate and to show thanksgiving and to celebrate the sacrifices their ancestors made going through the wilderness and finally conquering the promised land. And so that here they are celebrating, we've made it. God has fulfilled his promises. And, and our people endure the wilderness so that we can benefit from the land flown with milk and honey. And for seven days, they pause to celebrate the exodus and the triumph of Joshua. Solomon purposely chooses that festival, that feast, that celebration, that holiday to consecrate the temple. After all, it is on this holiday you have them not just looking back, but, but they look back through the means of offerings. Think about it. This is the first time the offerings of the Feast of Tabernacles is offered at the temple. God has kept his promises to Israel. And the response to that is through atonement, through a gathering, through celebration. God has kept his promises. Well, that's the assembly. Let's look quickly at the ark here, verses 4 to 9. Now, this isn't news to you. It's not news to me. But we men are notorious for refusing to ask for directions help finding something at the store, or particularly reading the instructions. I am as guilty of this as any person with an XY chromosome, right? It is deep within our, our, our blood. In fact, I think that if you need to assemble things, if the picture on the box is not adequate enough to tell you how it get, go, puts together, you need to buy something else, right? That is not my fault. It's the manufacturer's fault. Right? If it's too complicated for a single picture, you, you, you shouldn't be, don't be surprised if, if we're missing a few pieces, okay? Um, well, what is it we have here is that's what the priests are doing. Now, in order to understand what the priests are doing here, we have to go back to the story of David. You remember what happened with David, right? He got, he got a little ahead of himself. He goes and he gets the Ark of the Covenant back. He's going to bring it back. You remember what happens? A guy by the name of Uzzah. So, Great name for a grandchild. Uzzah comes and uh, the, the priest didn't do the things the way that God had asked him to do. Remember, it's Uzzah who puts his hand up to keep it from falling. And remember what happened? He uh, went to go see Jesus really quick, okay? Uh, he died. 
And what happened was everything stopped and they started to reevaluate how they're going about this. We looked at that in some detail a few summers ago. This passage mirrors that in, in that when David finally got things right, he, he went through a certain procession from where the ark was left to where he put it in Zion. And now Solomon is following the same model he learned from his father. Now, relocating the Ark of the Covenant was no small responsibility. Much of what follows comes from, or mirrors again, that of David. And this time, they read the instructions first. They get it right. So you see there, verse 4 and 5, the priests parade the Ark, and they stop and they offer sacrifices. Now, the text doesn't tell us how often they do this. But if we borrow from the David story... In the David story, they would take six steps, one, two, three, four, five, six, and on the seventh step, they would put the ark down. It's, they're carrying it on poles. They would put it down. They would offer a sacrifice. They would pick it back up, go one, two, three, four, five, six, put it down, and on the seventh step, they'd offer a sacrifice. Now, let's be honest, 21st century Americans, if we have to wait more than seven seconds at the stoplight here at Brighton Park, we're throwing a fence. If you go over here at White Castle and it takes more than seven minutes to get your cheese sliders, you are going to lose your patience. Imagine a parade where everyone has gathered. You didn't get much sleep because you're sleeping in a tent. And, and here you are. You're thinking one step, two step, seven. Okay. Bring out the goats. Right? You know, it's going to take some time. Right? But why? Why follow this pattern? It is, it is quite simple. By the way, if you want the reference there, there it is in 2 Samuel 6. Um, the reason they are doing this is because um, uh, the only thing that can cleanse men by the grace of God is it comes by the means of atonements. What David learned was when you halfway do things, you are not showing the reverence necessary for God. Because the Ark of the Covenant is the presence of God. And when David goes in there without reading the instructions, just does things the way he feels like it, bad things happen. But when they read the instructions, when they are careful, when they understand we are standing in the presence of God and we must be covered in the blood of the Lamb. And so every six steps, they take that seventh, they offer atonement. They go another six steps, and on the seventh, they offer atonement. The seven is significance because it represents completion, fullness, perfection. In fact, you'll see there, verse 5, they offered so many, in, uh, so many sacrifices, they could not be counted or numbered. The same thing is stated in First Chronicles, the parallel passage of this. Now, it finally rests in verses 68. They, they bring it to, to the final resting place. This will be in the inner sanctuary, better known as the Holy of Holies. Now, the emphasis here is quite interesting. Notice that in verse 6, the priest brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, is placed in the inner sanctuary of the house, the holy place, right? That's the Holy of Holies. And they placed it underneath the wings of the cherubim. So the cherubim are already there. So you can put the Ark of the Covenant right underneath it. And the poles were so long, right? It keeps talking about the poles. You can't see if, uh, when you're in the inner sanctuary, you can't. You're outside of it, you can't. Um, uh, but I want you to notice here, the emphasis is on the cherubim. It's a bit, bit unnecessary detail, isn't it? 
Like if I'm writing this and I'm in a hurry, because I usually are, I would say, all right, they finally made it four weeks later. They, they got in there. Everyone's hungry, starving to death, right? And you thought a sermon was long, right? And, and so they get it in there and, and boom, they're done. Everyone went home and had dinner. Cracker Barrel, of course. But rather, the text wants to say, look, let me tell you exactly where they put this. Right underneath the cherubim. Now, I'm going to offend somebody here. I'm going to ruin your childhood and probably half the decorations in your house. Cherubim are not angels. Angels are angels. Cherubim, get this, are cherubim, which is why we call them cherubim and not angels. Otherwise, we would call the cherubim angels. Cherubim are cherubim. Angels in the Bible don't have wings. Oftentimes they're confused as, as men. Read, for example, Genesis 19. Amen. And the stories of Solomon and Gomorrah, those are angels, right? They're confused with men. Now, these are cherubim, which means cherubim have a different function than that of angels. Let me give you two functions of cherubim. I'm going somewhere, here, somewhere with this. Uh, that and lets me be nerdy. Two functions of cherubim. They're mentioned over 66 times in the Bible. The first is that they guard sacred space. When's the first time we meet cherubim? It's outside the Garden of Eden. You remember what happens? Adam fails to guard sacred space by letting the crafty serpent in. And when they rebel against God, being seduced and deceived by the serpent, they are exiled from the garden, but the sanctuary of God, known as the Garden, uh, the garden of Eden, must be guarded at sacred space. Who does God send? Cherubim. They guard sacred space. And that's what they're doing here. Is that the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, is, is the presence of God. They are guarding sacred space. Whenever we see visions of the throne room of God up in heaven, who do we find there? Cherubim and seraphim. Cherubim are guarding. Seraphim are, are, are worshiping. But they have their functions there. One is to guard sacred space. The images of these cherubim are well known in ancient culture that, that there are beings that guard the sacred space of God's presence. The other purpose they have is they uphold the sacred throne. This language is important. They put the ark right below the cherubim's wings, right? Because the wings are hovering over the ark of the covenant. Because the Bible tells us over and over again, the Lord is one who is seated above the cherubim. The idea is that God is holy and lifted up, and it is the cherubim who are actually holding him there. He is resting on his throne above the cherubim's wings. And so when the high priest would enter to the Holy of Holies, he would not see a graven image of Yahweh that violates the law of God. What he would see are the cherubim who are hovering over the ark, and the high priest would, would know God is here, and I am in his presence. How does the high priest enter to the presence of God? Atonement. It's grace. It's not ritual. It's blood. He has to be washed. He has to be cleansed. He has to be sanctified. He has to be made holy in order to stand in the presence of the Holy One. So David would write in Psalm 99.1, The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits and thrown the cherubim, let the earth quake. Now, is David talking about in the heavens or is he talking about the temple? Now, the temple doesn't exist in the days of David, but, but you can see how it's both and, isn't it? 
The image of the ark and the presence of God there in the cherubim, they would have understood the imagery that one cannot enter the presence of God without being washed in the blood of the Lamb. Well, let's look thirdly and finally, real briefly, the appearance in verses 10 through 11. We looked at this some last week, so we won't belabor the point. But now that all of this has happened, the ark is now in the temple. The people watch in awe as the heavy glory of God descends to rest in the inner sanctuary. God is finally seated on his throne in the temple above the cherub. This is the climax of the Hebrew Bible. The scene is so intense. You see it there in verses 10 through 11. Again, we looked at it last week. The priests have to like run away. They can't be there. The scene is too awesome for them. They cannot be present because the presence of God, the glory of God is heavy indeed. This is what Abraham had hoped for. This is what Moses had worked for. This is what Joshua had conquered for. This is what David had worked prepared for. On this special day, the Jews watched as God tabernacled among his people and they beheld his glory. And it all came by the means of atonement. It's interesting, isn't it? They didn't go through, they didn't go through a thousand pages of ritual. They simply trusted in the efficiency of blood. And in so doing, they could stand in the presence of God. There is a major problem with this scene. It's actually the, the major problem of this chapter. If the Old Testament ended here, that's a good ending to a story, isn't it? One could argue that maybe the Queen of Sheba is the climax of Solomon's story, but I really believe this is the climax of the Hebrew Bible. The problem is that the ending is a bit disappointing. What we discover is that the temple is insufficient for, for sinners. It's insufficient. The people would gather. They would celebrate. They would do the rituals. They would do everything that they were supposed to do according to the rule book. But they were still a muddy mess in their hearts. You see, what they did was they confused grace into religion. And religion is foolishness. Religion is what we do when covered in mud we start cleaning our house. It just makes things worse than what they already are. What grace does is it cleanses us first. And so before long, the Jews, um, the Jews ruined, um, they ruined grace and everything becomes a mess. So what we discover in the end we need someone who is the true and better. You knew where this was going, didn't you? It's Jesus. You can't read this text without seeing Jesus. After all, we don't have a temple now. We don't offer uh, uh, lambs and goats and cattle or anything like that because it's all in Jesus. Can I tell you just two things about Jesus we see from this text? First of all, Jesus is a more powerful offering. The temple system was limited by animal sacrifices. As such, one must bring over and over again another sacrifice with each sin 
with each holiday, with each travel, with each uh, guilt. Over and over again, you're offering sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. But what we have in Christ, the, the writer of Hebrews tells us, is a more powerful offering who, as the eternal Son of God, offers on our behalf as our mediator an eternal sacrifice that is good once and for all, meaning that through the cross we can be cleansed of all of our sins, past, present, and future. Whether we feel like it or not, grace is sufficient for all of our sins, and it is greater than all of our sins because we have the better and true Lamb of God. Jesus is a more powerful offering, and his grace is sufficient for all that we need. Secondly, Jesus is a perfecting offering. Jesus accomplishes what these ritual sacrifices could not. He cleanses us of all shame of all of our sin and of all of our guilt. At the cross, we are made new. We are washed forevermore. And this is the beauty of Christ. He embodies all the imagery that we see in this singular text. He is the presence of God who now sits atop the cherubim. He is the mediator between us and God. He is the high priest who intercedes on our behalf. He is the lamb of God who is not just the one who offers the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. He is the true and better temple. Well, if Johnny knows he will have to be cleansed before he can clean, why don't you and I get this? It's a simple principle. But often we buy into the live religion that says, I can handle it myself. The good news of Jesus is Christ by faith already has. You just have to accept it. The question the hymn writer would ask, are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Lay aside the garments that are stained with sin and be washed in the blood of the Lamb. There is a fountain flowing for the soul unclean. Oh, be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? I don't know your story. I don't know what brings you here today, but I know that the answer is the finished work of Christ upon the cross and his triumphal uh, victory at the empty tomb. If you have never embraced this in Christ, come today. And if you are buying into a theology of religion, I beg of you today to come to the throne of grace that sits above the cherubim and find the atoning work of Christ, the one who gives us grace and abundance. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, I ask that you would.